Many of you remember a thousand years ago in March, spring breakers on your news feed that were partying and celebrating and taunting all of the news of this pandemic that had spread all over the world and into the United States. And they were talking about the curve and of quarantine and of social distancing. All the conversations had begun right around that time. And splashed across our news feeds and televisions were college students and young men and young women all over our nation that were that were flaunting and snubbing their noses at the warnings of what was to come. After all, this was their spring break. This is what they had rightly earned for all of their hard work. And there was going to be no virus and no pandemic that was going to prevent them from spending this week partying. And of course, as many of you know, or perhaps as many of you saw and ridiculed them, saw the foolishness for what it was. Word came out, trickled out over the course of a couple of weeks that a number of those college students, not just dozens but hundreds, who had been gone for spring break, who had flaunted against all of the warnings and partied instead, ended up contracting the virus, some seriously so. And there was, it seems toward many of them, a collective, I told you so in our nation. Not that we shouldn't be called to compassion for such as these, but there's a sense in which they received their comeuppance and everybody knew it. It was ultimate hubris, pride before the fall. And that's the spirit that we see in Jerusalem in Isaiah 22. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the 22nd chapter of Isaiah. We're continuing our study in this, one of the longest books of the Bible. And we're spending our time here because one of the nice things about Isaiah, though we'll be in it for some time, is that once we get to the end of it, we'll be all over our Bible. Isaiah points us to everything that comes before. Isaiah points us to everything that follows. In a sense, you can study your whole Bible from the prophet Isaiah. And we've been all over the place. We'll continue to this morning as we consider God's Word. But we're thinking about this idea of throwing a party in the face of warnings of judgment. Look at what Isaiah has to contend with in Isaiah 22. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured, and all of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. No, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion 
in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen, oh, they took their stand at the gates. For he has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters from the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and broke down the houses to fortify the wall, and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Well, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness. Killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely, this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward of Shebna who is over the household, and I want you to say to him, what you do here for whom, you, for whom have you here? That you have cut out a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Oh, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O oh, you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. Oh, there you shall die and you shall be your and shall, there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind your sash on him and I will commit his, your authority to his hand. And he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. He shall shut, none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue. Every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word, if you would. We see two things in this chapter, two main points that get to our big idea. In chapters, or in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see God desert a self-sufficient city. And in verses 15 to 25, we're going to see God deposes a self-serving leader. That God deserts a self-sufficient city and God deposes a self-serving leader. And in both of these points, we see one main point summarized. This is the big idea of the sermon, my sermon in a sentence, and that is that God opposes the proud, but he preserves everyone 
who trusts in him. God opposes the proud, but he preserves everyone who trusts in him. Let's consider this first point, beginning in verse 1 through verse 14, of God deserting a self-sufficient city. We're going to see in the first eight verses, Jerusalem warned, and then in the last handful of verses, verse 8 to verse 14, mercy scorned. We're going to see Jerusalem warned, and then we're going to see mercy scorned. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. We see here the oracle concerning the valley of vision. That phrase, the valley of vision, is referring to Jerusalem. But why is it here that Jerusalem is referred to as a valley when the city of Jerusalem is actually set up on a hill? It's because the reference isn't so much geographical as it is spiritual and theological. It has more to do on what is going to be coming upon them. In the Bible, a valley is something that's associated with darkness and despair. And as we'll see, Jerusalem is about to be in a valley, in the valley of the shadow of death. It's going to be conquered and carried away by Babylon. And there's not going to be any vision, and there's not going to be any revelation for the people, because as we'll see, they have no ears to hear. There will only be darkness. There will only be despair. They will be in a valley. The city that was once a city of vision and of revelation and of God making himself known and dwelling with them will go silent and they will go dark. That's why Isaiah responds in the second half of verse 1. What do you mean that you have gone up all of you to the housetops? This is an idiom that today would translate something like, what's up with you? What's your problem? We see here that Isaiah is utterly astonished. He's just warned them about Babylon previously in chapter 21. And how in the heels of that warning should they have responded? Well, they should have responded with repentance. They should have sought after God. But as we see in verse 2, their response was the exact opposite. So Isaiah says, what's up with you? Well, I'll tell you what. I told you that you're about to get threshed and winnowed. And what do you do? You throw a party. You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. They're like those idiot spring breakers back in March who flaunted themselves at the news and, and refused to stop partying despite the, the reported pandemic. Hundreds of cocky spring breakers ended up contracting the virus. Their pride and their sense of self-entitlement led them to snub their nose at the threat. Well, that's exactly what we see here. They're shouting. It's tumultuous. They don't mean that in a, in a warlike state, but it is like Mardi Gras, exulting town. And yet it says, your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. And all of you who were found, you were captured too, even though your leaders had fled far away. Isaiah here is speaking of what we refer to as the prophetic perfect tense. He is speaking about future events as if they are happening in the present because those future events are as good as fulfilled. He tells them that not only are their leaders going to tuck tail and run and then be captured, a prophecy that we see fulfilled in 2 Kings 25. You should go back and look at that. You'll see Isaiah's words perfectly fulfilled. We don't have time to look at it this morning. But he says also, not only are your leaders going to run, but you're going to die. 
But notice at the end of verse 2 that their deaths aren't going to come by the sword. Well, the question becomes, if their, if their death isn't going to come by the sword, then, then how is it that they are going to die? How's it going to happen? Well, the prophet Jeremiah, prophesying more than a century later during the Babylonian captivity, fills in all of the gaps for Isaiah. So I want you to keep your finger here in Isaiah 22, and I want you to turn to your right to the book of Lamentations. You'll find Lamentations tucked neatly away between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's easy to miss. Small little book tucked right away there. And I want you to go to Lamentations chapter 4. Jeremiah is preaching and prophesying as Babylon is conquering, besieging, and taking away as captives the Judeans. The southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem. And listen to what he prophesies in verse 9 of chapter 4. He says, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced, not by a sword, remember what Isaiah said, but by the lack of the fruits of the field. He says those who don't die by the sword are going to starve to death. In fact, he goes on in verse 10 to say that it's so bad that mamas are going to be forced to eat their own kids to survive. That the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Same language that Isaiah uses in terms of his weeping, the daughter of my people. Speaking of Jerusalem. But all of this that Isaiah prophesies about, all this that Jeremiah is describing this is exactly what God promised would happen if Israel broke covenant with him. Keeping your hand in Isaiah, because we're going to go back there, I want you to go over to your left to Deuteronomy 28. We're trying to make sense of what is going on. Why is Isaiah speaking this way? Why is Jeremiah observing the things that he sees happening and how are these things all connected? Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here we have a second giving of the law, that is, of the conditions of the old covenant. That if Israel obeys God, he will bless them and keep them in the land and cause them to flourish, and he will dwell among them. But if they disobey him, if they disobey his law and rebel against him, then they will be covenant breakers, and he will withdraw his word, withdraw his present, and he will have them hauled away by foreign powers, by the nations, by those who are unclean. Deuteronomy 28. And I want you to begin in verse 49. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 49. Read along with me. Keeping in mind Isaiah's words of not merely dying by the sword and Jeremiah filling in the gaps of dying not just by the sword but by starvation so bad that mamas are, are cooking their babies and, and this is what we see in Deuteronomy 28 verse 49. That the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth swooping down like an eagle a nation whose language you do not understand hundreds of years earlier God has already told them has already promised that if you make yourself a covenant breaker Babylon is coming verse 50 they will be a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young 
It shall eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. That is, you'll have no food left until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave your grain, your wine, or oil, the increase of the herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. You will not die a quick death by the sword. You will die a slow death by starvation at the hands of this nation. This is what will happen if you break covenant with me. That God had entered into covenant with Israel. And if they kept covenant with him, he would bless them and dwell with them. If they rebelled against them, they would be cursed as covenant breakers. Well, what we see in the Babylonian captivity, prophesied by Isaiah, described by Jeremiah, is God brought upon Jerusalem the covenant curses that he promised and that they so richly deserved. Coincidentally, this is why a better covenant than the old covenant is needed. This is why we need a new covenant ratified on better promises. Those promises which find their yes and amen in Jesus. The final seed of Abraham and the true Israel. The one who fulfilled all of the conditions of the covenant and the one who on the cross exhausted all of its curses. For every person who turns from their sin and trusts in Him alone to be saved. That's why Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree, so that in Him, that is in Jesus, not through the physical nation of Israel, through Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. That's justification by faith alone, righteous standing before God and the gift of the Spirit. The blessing of Abraham might come not just to Israel, but to all nations. Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, for us, for us, God has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in our hearts. But for Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, there was only blindness. They were in a valley, and it led to confusion. And this confusion is yet another way that Israel would be cursed for breaking covenant. Staying in Deuteronomy, I want you to scan up about 25 verses and I want you to find verse 15. Verse 15, pick up with me. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bow. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed and perish quickly on the account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will send confusion. And that's exactly what Isaiah saw happen in verses 5 through 8. Go back to Isaiah 22. Verse 
For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kira uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Just to recap, in verses 2 and 3 in this chapter, we saw that Israel was unresponsive to God. But now we're going to see in verses 5 through 8 that because they were unresponsive to God, they are going to be uncovered by God. Notice in verse 5, the Jerusalem, or that Isaiah refers to them again as the valley of vision. I told you before that this was an ironic statement, and here's the irony, that the city that was set on a hill as a light for the nations now finds itself in darkness. Their vision has given way to blindness, and in their blindness, confusion. They are cursed according to the covenant. Their walls of defense in the second half of verse 5, notice that, are going to be broken down. And when they cry to God for help, notice their cries aren't going to go any higher than the mountains. When they were humbled in Egypt, they cried to God and God heard their cries. But now in their pride, when they cry to God, God will turn a deaf ear. Is there anything more frightening than God turning his ear away from you in your need? They've been cursed by God. And in verse 6, how will the walls be broken? Well, we see that the Babylonian allies are going to join in the fight. Jerusalem is going to be sieged from all sides. So besieged, in fact, that in verse 7, Isaiah says, you're going to be up to your elbows in chariots. And those chariots are going to stand at the gates, those gates being the most vulnerable part of the defenses of the city. And all of this is for what reason? We see that in the beginning of verse 8. It's not for political reasons. It's not for military reasons. It is ultimately for spiritual reasons. God has taken away the covering of Judah. God has uncovered them. He stripped them bare. For a Hebrew to be uncovered is to be left naked and humiliated. The valley of vision is unresponsive to God, and so they are therefore uncovered by God. And through it all, we see that Isaiah is totally, completely, and utterly undone. He's beside himself. Glance back at verse 4. He is crushed in his soul for the people that he loves, in the city that he loves. Therefore, he said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Don't labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Contrast his response with the partiers of verse 2. They're shouting and partying like Mardi Gras and exulting in themselves. They probably would have looked at Isaiah and said, Come on, Isaiah, lighten up. Why do you have to be so serious all the time? Why do you got to be so doom and gloom? Things seem to be going pretty well. Stock market's up, interest rates are down. Let's party. But Isaiah says, Leave me alone. He says, listen, if you want to live in your fantasy world with all of your false senses of assurance and security, fine, be my guest. But I'm going to mourn. 
The old Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane had, as many have accounted, such an amazing power in the pulpit. One day a visitor came to visit his church and asked the sexton, who keeps up the church, what was the secret to McShane's power in the pulpit? And the sexton replied, climb up into his pulpit. And so he did. And the sexton said, now I want you to lean over the pulpit. So the man leaned over the pulpit. And the sexton said, now stretch out your hands. And he did. And then the sexton said, now weep. That there is something about the truth of God gripping the servant of God which makes him mourn for the people who hear him and gives his message power. That same Robert Murray McShane had a good friend named Andrew Bonar. Perhaps some of you have read Bonar's biography of Robert Murray McShane. But he had a friend named Andrew Bonar and McShane asked him one day, what did you preach to your people today? And Robert Murray McShane turned to him after Bonar told him what he had preached and he said, did you preach with tears? And friends, isn't this what we saw in Jesus' ministry? Twice in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it because of sorrow for himself or his own pains or his own circumstances. In both instances, when Jesus is recorded to have broken down and wept, it is because of sorrow for others. In one case, in John chapter 11, it was for his deceased friends, Lazarus. Many of you remember that. The other instance was Luke 19 when he wept over Jerusalem. And why is it that Jesus wept? What was it that caused his deepest anguish? It was the anguish of others. What was it that caused Jesus' tears? It was the tears of others. Those who are suffering under the curse of sin and death and and in instances such as Jesus looking over Jerusalem are utterly blind to it, and so it is with Isaiah. He is weeping bitter tears concerning the destruction of Jerusalem because they're blind and have been darkened and are under covenant curses. So here in verses 1 through 8, we see Isaiah weep because... Jerusalem has been warned, and yet they have been unresponsive. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 14. Jerusalem has been warned, and now God's mercy will be scorned. Read with me, beginning in the second half of verse 8. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you didn't look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and, and wearing sackcloth. Notice that's exactly what Isaiah did. And behold... Joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. When the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears, Isaiah says, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. 
So Isaiah sees God uncovering Judah in verse 8. That they are going to be left naked and humiliated. But we see in these few verses that Israel, even in spite of their uncovering, will not grow any wiser. They don't turn to God. Instead, they turn to, quote, the weapons of the house of the forest, which is referring to Solomon's armory. Even now, the self-sufficient Jerusalem is looking to the arm of the flesh instead of to the God of hosts. And as a result, in verse 9, all of their defenses are shot. The city of David is being breached in all directions by enemies from all directions. And they quickly look to make preparations. They're collecting water in verse 9. They're counting houses in verse 10. But the indictment ultimately comes at the end of verse 11. You look to everything else, but you didn't look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Isaiah says, when all of this goes down, and it will, Remember that God's plans were made known to you. He is the one that promised to do this, and yet you still didn't turn to Him. You trusted in your own plans. Brothers and sisters, God is not opposed to us making plans. But God is opposed to those plans and preparations becoming a substitute for trusting in Him. And so we should ask ourselves often, is my confidence in God or is my confidence in having the perfect plan for my life, for my finances, for my kids, for my marriage? Have I spent as much time in prayer as I have in preparation? Do I feel more secure when my plan comes to fruition and comes together or do I feel less secure when it doesn't? Do I make my plans knowing that God may break my plans? And when He does break my plans, do I question His goodness for me? Or do I thank Him for saving me from me? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 14 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Elsewhere, the author of Hebrews reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is a way for you to do everything that seems responsible and be in sin. You can have backup plans for all of your backup plans and yet have those plans not be pleasing to God. God tells us that He alone is worthy of our trust. He is most honored when we trust in Him and rest in Him. And just as faith is the preeminent way to magnify God, unbelief and self-sufficiency is the preeminent way to insult God. Which is why in verses 12 and 13, we see Jerusalem called to repent. That in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. But behold, what do you see? Joy and gladness. You were supposed to be weeping and there was joy. You should have been mourning and there was gladness. There should have been baldness and the wearing of sackcloth. And instead, you're killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. You are partying. 
What God wants from his people is a broken and a contrite heart. The sackcloth and the baldness, that's not really ultimately what God is after. Those are just outward expressions of an inward spiritual reality coming out from them, and that is a contrite heart and of godly sorrow leading to repentance. Even in the 11th hour, God is willing to save them if they would just stop trusting in themselves and they would turn to him. That they would be like thief on a cross. Even in the final hour, they can turn to him and they won't do it. Instead, they party. Instead, they say, or rather than saying, let us go to God so that tomorrow we may live, they say, oh, well, what's the use? We're sitting on death row. What's left to do but to eat and drink for tomorrow we die? When Isaac was tested by God and asked to slaughter Jacob, Genesis 20, or rather Abraham was tested by God and asked to slaughter Isaac in Genesis 22, he was willing to go through with it because Isaac was the son of the promise. And that even if he did kill Isaac, he knew that God would raise him from the dead. Because God has to keep his promises. Well, here we have the sons of Abraham, the people of Jacob, the people of promise, who have forgotten that they are the people of promise, that the nation itself cannot die because God's purposes for them, according to his covenant with Abraham, had not yet been fulfilled. But unlike Isaac, or rather unlike Abraham with Isaac, they don't turn to God in faith, trusting that God will preserve them according to promise, even contrary to their own instincts. Even if we die, God will raise us from the dead if he has to in order to be faithful to his promises. No, instead they say, well, it's been a good run. Pass the meat and the wine. Because tomorrow it's all over with. The Apostle Paul provides us with a glimpse into Judah's mindset here when he quotes verse 12, or rather verse 13, in his lengthy discourse on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This party is Israel's final statement of unbelief. There is no God, and even if there was, His promises are empty, and He's powerless to save. Well, we know from reading through the rest of the Bible, that God will be faithful to save a remnant from Israel. And we know that not all who are of Israel are Israel. They may share Abraham's DNA, but they don't share Abraham's faith. And to these, God says, okay, you want a party? Here's what I'm going to give you, verse 14. This iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. We have seen over the course of these few verses 
faithless preparation. We have seen foolish jubilation. And now in verse 14, we're going to see final condemnation. When God says, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, He is not saying that God will forgive them when they die. It's saying that their sin will not be atoned for at all. There's no second chances after this. There's no post-mortem evangelism. Here, we have the unpardonable sin. Scorning mercy and refusing repentance is unforgivable. To ignore God's word and to refuse repentance is to scorn God's mercy and to scorn God's patience. This is why Jonathan Edwards wrote, There is no wrath like wrath stirred up from mercy scorned. Of all of the sins that the people of God could commit, none stoked the fury of God like this. The scorning of His mercy of his word coming to them through the prophet Isaiah and of that word being ignored and of them rejecting the gospel. Oh, friend, listen, if you are watching, if you've tuned in, what we see in Isaiah and happening to Jerusalem is really just a type, it's a pattern of what awaits all things at the end of the age. All men and women All those who refuse to hear God's word just as you're hearing it now and to turn from your own self-sufficiency to God in faith. Trusting that the righteous wrath that you rightly deserve and that we rightly deserve is not poured out on you at the end of the age, but should you trust in him is poured out instead on the Son of God. In Romans 2, Paul says, do you take lightly the patience and the kindness of God? Those are meant to lead you to repentance. That if you reject repentance, you are scorning the mercy of God. You're you're scorning the kindness of God. And he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself until the day of wrath comes. That is, you are continuing to borrow against the mercy of God and it is compounding with interest every single day and there's coming a day where all of it is going to be poured out on you and God will be good to do it because of your rebellion. But in the very next chapter in Romans, Paul gives us the solution to this day of wrath. In Romans 3, he gives the solution to the problem of Romans 2, and that is God will make not his wrath revealed and known, he will make his righteousness known. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do so by setting forth his son publicly as a propitiation. This is one of those 25-cent words that Christians should love more than we do. And non-Christian, if you're listening, it's important that you know. The way that sinful men and women can be accepted by God, counted righteous, is not only in trusting in Christ and having His righteousness imputed to us, but in having our sin and all of our rebellion and all of the debt that we've incurred as a result counted to His account instead and on the cross for Him to absorb every ounce of wrath from His Father that, was, that you and I deserved. 
That image of propitiation is the image of a sponge soaking up every last drop of wrath so that there's not one drop left for you and I. It's just like if you had a sponge and you poured water into the top of it and nothing comes out of the bottom. That is what Christ does as he covers his people and we are in him. He absorbs and soaks up all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Because he lived in such a way to fulfill the very covenant that we've broken. And should we trust in him, all of the covenant curses that you and I deserve will be exhausted on our behalf in him. Oh, friend, listen. Don't be like Judah. Don't be like Jerusalem, ignoring the word of God, thinking that this life is all that there is. Pass the wine, pass the meat, tomorrow we die, and then that's it. Oh, friend, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who will live once and die twice, both physically and spiritually, for rejecting the Son of God. And there are those who by faith will trust in Christ, and though they die once, they will live twice, physically and spiritually in the presence of God forever. Friend, trust in Christ. Do not think that you will stand in the day of wrath. Be clothed in Christ. Let him be your propitiation, your mercy seat. Well, as is so often the case, if you want to get a glimpse into the heart of a nation, you need to look no further than its leaders. That's why Isaiah turns his focus from the nation as a whole to a couple of individuals in verses 15 and following. We saw God desert a self-sufficient people in verses 1 through 14, and so now in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, we're going to watch God depose a self-serving leader. Pick it up in verse 15. That says, Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward to Shebna, who's over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the heights and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is going to hurl you away violently, O you strong, strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. And there you will die. There you will be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. That name, Shebna, is an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name. Once, you remember in the book of Genesis, a Hebrew rose to become the second most powerful man in Egypt and he did good for the kingdom. Well, here, an Egyptian has now risen to become the second most powerful man in Judah and he has brought evil into the kingdom. Most likely whispering into King Hezekiah's ear of an alliance with Egypt, which... Isaiah had just warned them against in earlier chapters. And so in verse 16, we see why Judah was preparing to die in verse 13. Tomorrow we die. And that's because the leaders were making the same faithless preparations in verse 16. Here we see that the nation is falling apart. Shebna has made sure, even in the midst of all the chaos, that his tomb would be in place. And it's going to be in place where he can be remembered and commemorated for generations to come. Shebna is only worried about making a name for himself. And so Isaiah confronts this wicked leader. He says, what are you even doing here? 
You're an outsider. You're not even of Israel. And one who has become an insider, not by faith in the God of Israel, but by political machinations. You are a usurper. You don't belong here. And then he goes on to say in verses 17, pay attention, you strong man. That's sarcasm in Hebrew. He's saying, listen up, big boy. You think you're so big? You think you're so strong? The Lord is going to grab you and he's going to crumple you up like a ball and he's going to throw you away. In fact, the picture that we get in verse 18 is kind of like the hammer throw in the Olympics. It's of God spinning them faster and faster and faster and then letting them go. But then why does God, why does God go from focusing on the whole nation for the bulk of this chapter to focusing on this Egyptian politician. And that's because those who are in power often reflect the values of the society as a whole. And that's something that you and I need to keep in mind as we evaluate our own leaders. We need to run away from the foolish conclusion that somehow what we see in Washington, D.C. and in Austin, Texas, and even here in Denton, the county seat of Denton County, even as we see it here, that the values that we see in our leaders are not contrary to the values of our society. The values that we see in our leaders are mostly representative of what we see in our own hearts. What we see in Washington is a glimpse of the United States, just as what we see in Shebna is a glimpse of what you see in Jerusalem. He is reflective of the values of the society as a whole. And as we've already seen in verses 1 through 14, Shebna embodies the faithless culture and the proud mindset of Jerusalem that rejects the word of God and the mercy of God. So here we go after these handful of verses, after shaming this bad leader, we see in verse 20 that God is going to raise up and he's going to honor a good leader in his place. In that day, Isaiah says, on behalf of God, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I'm going to clothe him with your robe, and I'm going to bind your sash on him, and I'm going to commit your authority to his hand, and he's going to be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. And I'm going to fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. That name Eliakim in Hebrew means God will raise up, or God will establish. And it's significant that he is called the son of Hilkiah, because Hilkiah means Yahweh is my portion. Eliakim is everything that Shebna and Jerusalem were not. Whereas Shebna was self-made and self-serving, Eliakim, according to verse 20, was raised up by God as a servant leader. Whereas Shebna had no portion in Israel, Eliakim's portion was the God of Israel. Whereas Shebna was unstable like a ball to be thrown away by God, Eliakim, in verse 23, is going to be fastened by God like a secure, like a peg. Not like a ball, but like a peg, fashioned in a secure place. Whereas Shebna brought shame to his master's house, Eliakim will bring honor. Shebna weakened the kingdom, but Eliakim will strengthen the kingdom. 
He's going to bring stability to Jerusalem. But that stability, as we see in verses 24 and 25, are ultimately going to be undermined. And that's where we see his own household becoming infested with nepotism. That all of the families we see in these two verses are going to come out of the woodworks. They're all looking for a handout. Just like perhaps professional athletes when they all of a sudden make their big payday and they get relatives that they never even knew existed coming out of the woodworks to get a little piece of the action. Same thing is happening here to Eliakim. So many, in fact, that the whole honor of his father's house, that is all of his relatives, are going to be hung on this one peg, and that peg that was once stable and secure is going to give out. Look at verse 24. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups to all of the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So we've seen that a bad leader was shamed. And we saw that a good leader in Eliakim was honored. But despite all of Eliakim's great attributes, he's still a sinner that couldn't resist giving in to the temptations that come with fame and power. He started well, but he didn't finish well. One of the things that I love about the Bible is how true to real life it is. That even the best of men are merely men at best. There are no lone rangers with silver bullets who never get shot. None of the heroes in the Bible are truly heroes. Abraham had faith, but he sold his wife into slavery, not once, but twice. Isaac was the son of promise, but didn't learn from his own father's mistakes, and he did the exact same thing. Jacob didn't trust the Lord's promise, but deceived his way into receiving a birthright, and later showed such favoritism among his own sons that it nearly destroyed his family had it not been preserved by the providence of God in sending Joseph to Egypt. Moses led God's people in the Exodus, but didn't obey God's word, and thus was prevented from entering into the promised land. David, yeah, he killed Goliath and he took his sword, but then he killed Uriah and took his wife. The best of men are men at best. And though Eliakim may have been a good leader, verses 24 and 25 leave us longing for something better. Leaves us longing for a perfect leader if even the best of men among us fail like this. Brothers and sisters, in this politically charged election year, Eliakim is a reminder to us that our ultimate hope is not in the replacement of Shebna's with Eliakim's. Because Eliakim, as good as he may be, will fail us. Our ultimate hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Eliakim. As we saw in Isaiah 9, he was called by God from his mother's womb and the entire government will be on his shoulder. He too, just like Eliakim, will be given the title of father, but this title will be everlasting father, leading, guiding, and protecting his people. He will be a true shepherd king. 
And regarding the key to the house of David given to Eliakim in verse 22, see that there? He's going to place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Well, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3, and I want, you to show, I want to show you something. Revelation chapter 3. All the way to the end of your Bible. We're considering how Jesus is the true and better Eliakim, the one who is established by God, the one whose portion is in the Lord, that is in full trust in his Father and all of his purposes, and he has been exalted. He's been given the title of Everlasting Father, and he's been given the keys to the house of David. Revelation chapter 3, look at this, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Does that sound familiar? It's Isaiah 22. Jesus, the true and holy one, was established by God. He was Eliakimed as the true servant of the Lord, the one who holds the key of David. And now as he reigns, he gives that authority to his people to rule along with him. It's what we see in Matthew 16 when, when Peter gives the confession of Christ as the Messiah and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood couldn't have revealed this to you. Only my Father in heaven could have showed you this. You have been enlightened. You've received revelation. You're not in a valley. You're a city set up on a hill. You are light. And because of this, I'm going to build my church on top of you and the apostles in this apostolic confession. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And you're going to bind and you're going to loose. That is, you're going to open and you're going to shut. Same language, only it doesn't stop with the apostles. Two chapters later in Matthew, or Matthew 18, that very authority that was given to the apostles, Jesus says, is also established and given to every faithful local church that is established upon the apostolic testimony, those who have Christ as the cornerstone and the apostles as its foundation. He says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am there with you. And insofar as you make judgments concerning what are true gospel professions and true gospel professors regarding those you put out, you are speaking on earth what is true in heaven. I give you the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. Brothers and sisters, just as Eliakim operated as a kind of priest King, he was always pointing to Jesus in an authority that ultimately belonged to him to open and to shut. And now we as a church do the exact same thing, that our congregation has been called to possess and to wield the keys of the kingdom, that is, to speak on behalf of heaven those things which are true concerning the gospel and those who represent Jesus to the world. 
This is why when we get to Matthew 28, we see Jesus standing over his disciples as they aim to go out and preach the gospel and plant churches. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he commissions them. And he says, I want you to make disciples of all nations, which is really just New Testament speak for go, preach the gospel, plant churches. And how is it that you're gonna exercise this ultimate authority in the preaching of the gospel over who's in and who's out, over opening and shutting? I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am giving you my ordinances so that you can carry out my authority on earth to speak what is true in heaven regarding what is a true gospel and who rightly represents me to the world. That is the mission of the church. And it's all bound up in the keys to the kingdom possessed by Jesus, delegated to the church, who have been deputized by his authority and now operate as priest kings in the world as true and better Eliakims to the nations. That is the church. Deputized speakers of the house, so to speak, on behalf of King Jesus, opening the door to the kingdom and shutting the, co- the door to the kingdom with the keys, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Letting people in, keeping people out. Preaching the gospel and watching the Spirit of God open people's hearts to respond to repentance and faith and preaching the gospel in such a way that men's heads will be hardened and will fulfill the purposes of God in their judgment. This is the task that the Lord has given us to wield the keys to the kingdom on behalf of the one who has been given the keys to the city of David, the true and the faithful one. May he find us faithful when he returns.